I grew up extremely rich. My father was a school teacher in Pocahontas, Arkansas, and he loved to read books. Think of the wealth that I got from that. And because he was poor, I learned how to work. There is this concern that this is the tipping point election-wise. There's an attempt to undermine the Constitution. And now elections are deeply controversial and there may be major fraud. What are some of your biggest concerns under a Biden and a Kamala administration? They will change the structure of the nation. They form a ruling class now. What angle do you think they're going to take to go pack the court? It's been nine for 150 years. If you can appoint six more, that'll be enough to get what you want. The conversation about reparation for slavery. People who never had a slave are going to be paying people who were never slaves. Why is that right? Governors like a Newsom, Cuomo, or Mayor de Blasio or Garcetti, what kind of jurisdiction does the government have to tell all of us that you cannot go anywhere and you have to stay home? If the flu gets bad in any year, they can shut down the economy or whatever parts of it they want. What about the businesses lost? What about the young people who lose the golden years of their life when they can prepare their intellects and character? If the idea of America doesn't work, what's option two to America? We have to save the country. The country's in trouble. My guest today is Larry Arn. He is one of four founders of Claremont Institute in Claremont, California. He's also the 12th president of Hillsdale College, as well as alma mater of London School of Economics and Oxford University. Larry, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Great, Patrick. Very nice to be with you. So, Larry, here's a story uh, that uh, I didn't want to bring up to you off camera. I wanted to tell you on camera is uh, March 29, 2009, you put an event together at Miramar Hotel and you had George Will there. And I think you had Pat Boone was in the audience and a few other guys were there. And I was at that event and I had a chance to uh, listen to George Will speak and uh, his views. He was upset at lawyers because lawyers were suing companies that are selling fish hooks because a kid swallowed it. So they said they need to be a warning sign on there. And his message just stuck with me. I came back and I couldn't stop thinking about capitalism and politics and my life changed. So I appreciate you for putting that event together. Well, thank you. Look what, look what's come of it. You're an awesome man. Well, thank you. Yes. And I, I used to go with uh, Larry Greenfield to, uh, I think it was Wayne Hughes home in uh, Malibu and they would have all those meetings. Yeah. Yeah, he's a, I know he's a friend of yours, and I used to go to those events. Yeah. So anyways, you know, I got a lot of questions for you, especially with the current times we're living in. And and a, a lot of my conversation having with you is around the Constitution, how we're protected because of this paper that was written. And the angle I want to take is slightly different because, look, we, we, we're all following the story. Sidney Powell, Giuliani, hey, you know, uh, there's so much fraud being shown. You know, I, I cannot tell you what we have here. There's so many things that we have going on. And then behind closed doors, you know, they're losing some cases. And then, you know, folks are saying, well, you have all this proof. Show it to us. Why don't you just show it to us? There's no way in the world, you know, Biden won 80 million to 75 million. You know, Trump's the one that had 80 million votes. All this stuff that we're hearing. The part that gets me thinking is the following. There is this concern that this is the tipping point election-wise. If a Biden administration gets elected, Elizabeth Warren's going to come in and she's going to change the game. Sanders is going to come in and he's going to change the game with minimum wage federal to 15 bucks and colleges and all this other stuff that's going to go on. How much are we protected by the Constitution? Well, uh, perfectly if it operates. But of course, the whole thing, the reason we know this is fundamental is that there's an attempt to undermine the Constitution. Uh, just start with this. Uh, so the most there are two things that are the most sensitive about the Constitution. Uh, one is we're a purely representative government. That means the only way the, the sovereign, who's the constitutional majority, has to control the government is through elections. And now elections are deeply controversial, and there may be major fraud. The second thing is the Constitution is above all, more than anything else, a structure, says James Madison, a set of arrangements. And those arrangements divide powers among the branches. And that helps keep them in line. And they, they can be strong and yet not despotic. Well, today, 80% of our laws are not passed by the Congress. They're passed in something we call the executive branch, a whole new thing, the administrative state. And it's hard for us to control a thing like that. 
And of course, just look at the intention to pack the court, right? The, the, the rule mm -hmm. of law depends upon an independent judge who can't be fired, making a decision that may be contrary to the vast power of the executive and the legislature. So those things are all threatened right now. And that means that, that it is very fundamental and you could, the people are at the cusp of losing control of their government. So, okay, so then let's go back then. It says, are there some flaws in the Constitution? Because when you think about the court packing situation and you saw Pence debate with Kamala when he kept cornering her, are you guys going to pack the court? Are you guys going to pack the court? Are you guys going to pack the court? And then she revealed what their approach is going to be. She revealed yeah. the fact that they're going to come out saying, well, you know, let's just talk about the judges that not one judge is African-American, et cetera. She took that angle, which means they can come out and say, hey, maybe we need to be a little bit more inclusive and have a, a you know diversity in our uh, uh, judges that we have so if today it's nine and a number you hear about is up to 15 who came up with the number 15 that we can go all the way up to 15. uh well the, the constitution doesn't say uh there's been three different numbers on the court one of them was six it's been nine for 150 years it was changed for the last time right after the civil war and I think the arithmetic is pretty simple. If you can appoint six more, that'll be enough to get what you want. And uh, so, you know, I think it's just that. I think they're just thinking backwards from what they want. No, I get, I get that part. But what I'm, what I'm asking is, why isn't it set in stone to say nine is it? We're not going above nine. So, you know, it's got to be five, four, six, three, two, seven, but we're not going above nine. Why is there that... Uh, additional 15 left there to say we can go all the way up to 15. Obviously, we know what the motive is. If they're up 9-6, they get to do whatever they want to do. But why did we leave that out for people to be able to one day take it to 15? Well, the court was not supposed to be as important as it's become. I mean, it's uh, the court is designed for one great thing, and that is it is decisive in the particular cases that come before it. And those set precedents that are worthy of respect but the other branches also have constitutional duties. You know, behind you is Abe Lincoln, right? And Abe Lincoln, the, the Republican Party, which was partially founded at Hillsdale College, I'm proud to say, uh, they had a plan. And the plan was, we don't have the constitutional authority to interfere with slavery in the states, but we can forbid it from going anywhere else. And that means most of the land, the unincorporated federal territories, and that'll place slavery in the course of ultimate extinction. Well, in 1858, the Supreme Court ruled that the uh, Constitution does not give the Congress any power to exclude slavery in those territories. In other words, it cut the heart out of the platform of Abraham Lincoln. And so he gave a wonderful speech and explained the relationship. He said, each of the branches has responsibility to interpret the Constitution as it deploys its power not exclusively the Supreme Court. Ultimately, in a conflict between the branches, the people are going to get to decide through an election. And, and, uh, and then he went on to say, poor Dred Scott, who was a slave who sued for his freedom because he was taken into a free state, he is a slave now, and no power on earth can liberate him. It's been decided in the final court. But the question, what are the powers of the federal government? those people can't decide that by themselves. And, uh, and so, but now we've written it in stone that they can. And they, you know, they've, they've written the craziest opinions in which they say that they personally are supposed to personify the people and the constitution. So it becomes more important now than it used to become. And, you know, if they do get to pack the court, it will hurt the dignity of the court but the residual dignity that the court enjoys will make it a very powerful move if they do it. In, in, you know, sometimes in, uh, uh, in, in competition or in war or, you know, whether you go study, I know you're very, very well read. You can, you, you've read the books that many of us haven't read uh, uh, over the years. And I know you're a big Churchill person and you've studied a lot of these guys, even Aristotle, the Bible, all of it. Um, when you think about strategy, you think about what the opponent's going to do. You have to start thinking like your opponent, your enemy, your competitor, whoever you're facing. What do you think is going to be the direction they're going to take, Biden or uh, uh, Kamala, the Democrats? I'm a registered independent. you got Republicans. you got Democrats. They want to go pack the court. 
What angle do you think they're going to take to go pack the court? Well, uh, they've hinted at that. Uh, They'll appoint a blue ribbon commission, probably full of famous scholars and distinguished politicians, all of them people who are ready to pack the court. And then they'll make some argument about why the court is not functioning properly. And they'll say that we can make it much more efficient. And then this race thing, which is just dreadful, you know, because uh, the truth is the human soul is immaterial. And if it is immaterial, then the human being can be free. And if it's not immaterial, it can't be free. And things that don't have matter don't have color. So the idea that you would identify the human being with the color of the, of the skin, that is a specific evil that was committed by the Confederacy. And for that matter, Adolf Hitler. Got it. So Blue Ribbon Commission, court not functioning properly, which, by the way, Biden has kind of alluded to it, I think, in a 60-minute interview when he said uh, that uh, he's going to bring people from both sides, scholars and educators and to kind of sit down and see what's the right thing to do. And he says, we'll see what we're going to do. We have some options and uh, we'll see how that'll take place. Um, what, what are some of your biggest concerns? You know, there's a lot of conservatives I speak to, you know, we've had people on both sides on to kind of see what they're saying, but what are some of your biggest concerns under a Biden and a Kamala administration? Well, you know, I'm running an old college. It's 176 years old. And in March of this year for two months, And now, again, for three weeks, she says, the operations of the college have been ceased. And, you know, that didn't happen in the Civil War. That didn't happen in either World War. That didn't happen in the Great Depression. And it's just the will of one woman. And she's got an administrative system. She's part of one that reaches up to Washington, D.C. But, you know, there's public health offices in every every town in America. And you can just see if the flu gets bad in any year, they can shut down the economy or whatever parts of it they want. And, you know, the freedom to assemble and to speak with one another is simply fundamental. And they have interfered with that on a massive scale and as never before. And so you can see. And, and then the second thing is, why is there not outrage about that? Well, there is, but it doesn't break into the biggest media because. Uh, the media and the ac- academy, the elite universities, uh, the big corporations who are heavily regulated and have reasons to be beholden to the government, and the government itself and its you know 23 million state, federal, and local employees, they form a ruling class now, and the rights of ordinary people are you know one of their strategies, by the way, is to concentrate political power in the urban centers. And it's a vast country. And the magic, the wonder of the American Revolution was they intended to unite a great continent under self-government at a time when they didn't even know how big the continent was. Nobody had ever been to the end of it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to concentrate power among people who live a certain way. And, and you know, that's not, that's maybe most people, but if most, barely most, and then there's just all kinds of people who are not going to get a say anymore. Is, is there the possibility of what uh, Reagan said many years ago, we're all one generation away from losing our freedom. Is, is, that, is that really something that applies to where we are today, where we can really dramatically change the face of America in one election? Yeah, I've been thinking that's coming for a long time, and now I think it's here. And, you know, these things that we've been talking about, right, they will change the structure of the nation and make it very difficult for ordinary people to have any influence on that. And here's something, you know, the intensity of the political debate is like the 1850s. Uh, You know, violence in the streets, uh, completely divergent views about the Declaration of Independence, its meaning, and the Constitution. But now there's something new, and that is sort of all of the establishment, all of the people who are in the best and most privileged places, they're all in agreement with each other. And, you know, it's just breathtaking to watch how uniform and predictable are the things that are said in the media and the things that are said in the academy. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, 
And you know, they, they another thing that's going on, this is like 1984, the novel, uh, we're changing history now. Uh, that's, you know, history is reality. Aristotle says, this alone is denied even to God to make what has been not to have been. And if you look at that 1619 project, that thing is just atrocious. It's just a complete distortion of the history of the country. And, uh, and, and that, you know, and, you know, thank God for it. Here's a bright spot. Some of the best established historians, Gordon Wood especially, have attacked that thing. And so there's some honest people left in the academy. And one has to pray there'll be more. Yeah, you're not saying making history. You're saying changing history. And how do you go about changing yeah, history? Well, the protagonist in 1984 is a man named Winston, Winston Smith. It's written, the novel is written by George Orwell, who you know, was a communist for a while and was in a prison thinking he was going to get selected to be shot. And that concentrates the mind, he later said. Winston Smith's job, his function in that novel, is to rewrite history as a constant activity. And millions of other people do it too. And so he gets this little pneumatic tube and a, and a cartridge drops down and he gives him instructions and he calls up any printed publication, they're all digitized now, and he changes it, what it says, old newspaper articles, magazine articles, encyclopedias, books, they change it to fit with what the party has said true today. And then they reprint everything. And so the whole literature of the society is flowing by like a river. And that is key in the final interrogation of Winston Smith, which happens at the end of the book when he's under torture. Uh, one of the points is that it has to be established in his mind to make him subject himself completely to this tyranny is that there's no reality. And one of the proofs of that is history itself is changeable. History itself is changeable. Whoever controls the present controls the past. I mean, we've heard that many, many it. times. You know, you read you, the book. Yeah, you you can. And by the way, what's funny is I just finished again Animal Farm in 1984 to get yeah. myself readjusted to it. I read this two weeks ago, and and, yeah. I, and just to kind of see how how much of it's applying to what's going on today. So you know, for me. Here's, here's why my family escaped Iran. We went to Germany and we came here. We, we came here for the idea of America. Okay, it's the idea of America. We've never met George Washington. I don't know Thomas Jefferson. We don't know Adams, Benjamin Rush. I don't know, the. And we've never met. We've read about them. We know what they've put together. We know why America became what it is today. But we're here for the idea and we're protected by a couple pieces of paper. And if those papers go away, Larry, th th this may sound a very strange question to someone like you. If the idea of America doesn't work, what's option two to America? Well, that's it. Uh, from the founders through Lincoln, one of the favorite things to say about America is that it was the last best hope of mankind on earth. And if we become a despotism, it'll be very hard to imagine where one could go. And, uh, you know, this is a big place, right? And like we can absorb the Cubans and the people of Eastern Europe and the Chinese and the Vietnamese, you know, millions of them. And, uh, you know, my own view is if they come under the law and they're freedom loving people, let them all in. Uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes people talk about New Zealand. That's a tiny little place and you can't get in there. And so, you know, in this, this, uh, this growth of this bureaucratic form of government. You know, our government operates in many respects the same way as the government of China operates. That is to say, they're a bunch of engineers, they control a lot of power, they tell people what to do in detail, they give you a social score based on what you post on social media and what you're overheard to say and what you print in the press. And uh, what your letters say, they open those sometimes. And then if you get a bad social score, then you can't travel anywhere. And it's hard for you to get a job. So it's a very scientific kind of control by force. And, uh, and that's it. The scientific part is what makes it different. Uh, they, can, they can hear everything. In 1984, 
there's a telescreen and it and it's two-way you have to watch it you're forbidden to turn it off and they can watch and listen to you whenever they want and you never know when they're doing it well that's you know the the technology is here for that now larry as a as a parent we know how to create urgency with our kids as a boss you know how to create urgency with the folks who you know report to you as a ceo founder you know you know how to drive an organization you're the president of a university with you know roughly 1450 students from 47 states including dc and foreign countries we know how to create urgency right there are ways to create urgency sometimes i wonder if the political parties are using fear tactics to create urgency for people to vote but it's not really the end of the world let me explain you know it's Oh, you guys, if we don't get Trump back in, let me tell you what's going to happen. It's the end of the world. If we don't get Trump out, we're going to be end of the world. It's, I think there's it's so much of that from both sides. It's the end of the world tactic to create urgency to want to go out there and vote. But I know a lot of people that it's created a kind of anxiety that people are losing their minds. They're thinking the end of the world is really coming to America. And so as, 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 um, as effective a strategy that may be to create urgency, I also think it's increased anxiety and panic into families at the highest level today. So it, it, to, to, to either reassure or validate the point, you, do you think there is a real, real sense of urgency of what could potentially happen to America? Or are the documents that our founders wrote that we have together in our court system, are we still going to be protected long term by that? Well, you know, every we have to save the country. The country's in trouble. Having said that, um, uh, we should be cultivating respect for our fellow citizens, and we should be cultivating reason and not force. Because when you start using force, then you get the civil war, and that's a god awful mess. Uh, so yeah, sure, and and uh, we should look to compromise everywhere we can. Uh, these uh, sweeping things that they propose to do, those are not compromises. And those should be resisted, but they should be resisted with argument. You know, I, I uh, issued a massive call for action at three receptions in Arkansas and Texas this week. And the call for action was, here's a list of books you should read, and then you should talk to your neighbors about them. That's the kind of thing that can get us out of this mess. So, so here's, here's the part I want you to know from my end, Larry, I'm not worried if it is a real urgent matter that we may lose the country and I'm comfortable it being just a marketing tactic. I'm both either way. I'm just trying to see from your standpoint, which one is it more? Are we really, you're somebody that uh, is well-read. This is your world. It's like talking to a doctor. If I go have a meeting with a doctor, I'm going to ask the question from the doctor. I just had a physical. So I got my score back on triglycerides. I got my cholesterol score back. And I use that hour to ask every single possible question I can about the body that I have to see what I can get. I have you right now. You've been in this world for a while. Is it really that urgent and that scary? Or this too shall pass? Uh, well, it, it will surely pass. All human things pass away. But the way you analyze it, you know, so Aristotelian political science, the first political science, here's how it works. You think about the causes of things. Uh, in Aristotle, everything has four causes. It's made out of something that's the uh, material cause. Somebody made it, that's the efficient cause. It looks like something that's the formal cause and it seeks something or loves something. That's the final cause. The most important are the last two. In America, the final cause of America is the Declaration of Independence and its principle that we are created equal and endowed by our creator with rights. That's, that's what we love, we Americans. That's what brought you and your family to this country and 150 years before what brought my family to this country. Uh, so the formal cause what the people of America, when they act together, look like is they look like the structure of the Constitution, the, the executive branch, the Congress, and the courts. And so if you have a debate going on, and this is the third time this has happened in American history, the first is the revolution, and the second is the Civil War, 
if you have a debate going on about the meaning of that final cause, there's a sharp difference of opinion about what equality constitutes. The equality that you came to this country for was, we're gonna start out as nobodies, as we are likely nobodies where we are right now because it's turned into a tyranny. But here's a place where nobodies get a chance. They gotta go. And so that's your equality, right? And it'll come out different according to different people. The other quality is if somebody is higher than somebody else, that has to be discrimination. And the government exists to even that out. And so that's a very fundamental debate. It can't be both those things. It's either one or the other. Yeah. Well, and then the formal, right? So this pack in the court, you know, we have created a, you know, the worst no-no in the, is a violation of the constitution in the founders was to delegate the legislative power. Uh, the first three articles, you know, the first is about the legislature and the second is about the executive and the third is about the, the judges. They all begin with the blank power shall be vested in. So the executive power in a president, the uh, judicial power in a Supreme Court and the lower courts. Only the first one says all the legislative power. That word all only occurs there. And if you read John Locke, you'll see there's a whole chapter about the vice of, de of delegating the legislative power. Because if you do that, there can be a lot more laws. You know, the Congress of the United States makes and the president signs about 150 to 200 laws a year. And that's the number that it's made for 150 years. And why it works the same way, it's cumbersome, it takes a while. And so now they delegated that out, right? And, you know, in the last year of Obama, I happen to know, they added 80,000 pages of regulations to the Federal Register. Few of those were made by the Congress. And then the question is, who made them? Well, you got to look it up, right? Because there's 150 agencies or so. By the way, there's, a, there, there's been, every, every little while, there's an outbreak of argument about exactly how many administrative agencies there are. And the answer is there are too many to count precisely. And, uh, and so, yeah, we're, we've built a great engine and uh, it's bigger than we are or threatening to become so. And so my point is we should be concerned about that. And we should yeah. think that through, right? It, it, it's not enough. We do need a very high level of statesmanship. The reason we got out of the Civil War is that man sitting back there over your right shoulder, right? He was nobody, you know, hardly anybody in history like him. Well, we need that standard now. We need somebody who's eloquent, who has a deep understanding, who can explain beautifully and who's courageous. And, you know, Donald Trump is some of those things, but, you know, it would be, it's, it's almost like a miracle well, you get somebody as good as that. You know, Winston Churchill was like that. He was just an awesome human being. And he changed things because of that. Uh, and he could because, and, and he did it with his mouth. You know, he just, uh, people heard what he said and it was more powerful than swords. Although it put a lot of swords into motion. Larry, why do you think men like that are hated? Well, I mean, Churchill was hated. Uh, if you read his books, the, 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 and, and I'm a Churchill guy myself as well. But why are people like that, leaders like that, hated? Well, you know, first of all, they do a lot. You know, they're consequential. And uh, the, at the biggest scale, people like that make decisions that help or harm very large numbers of people. The good ones, uh, they don't intend to harm anybody except as an act of justice if somebody's done wrong. But, you know, like, uh, uh, here's an example. Here's what happens when you're a statesman. Uh, Churchill forecast the horrors of modern war. He's a very brave soldier. He wrote three best-selling books about his war experiences before he was 26 years old. And in 1901, he forecast the dead, dreadful cost of the First World War only one who did. And then he tried to avoid that war. And then when they got in that war, he tried to mitigate its cost. 
in life, especially. He said, we're a free country. We don't send, you know, a big percentage of our young men to death in a four-year period. So he had two plans. And one was uh, he, he started the experiments that involved that invented the tank. He's the one who thought it up. It's called tank because he was in the Admiralty. He was the head of the Navy and he got a Naval engineer to start working on it. And the code name was Waterships Tanks. He was trying to spare life. Well, then the other thing was to go around. And since the trenches went from the Alps to the sea, you sort of had to go around the, the continent. And so he went down to the Straits of the Dardanelles and tried to force them with the Navy and get through, you know, and Turkey, which was in league with Germany in that war, was in the way. Well, it didn't work. And the thing is, this effort of his to save lives ended up costing a lot of lives. And those people, you know, whose family members died, they didn't know what his motive was. If it had worked, it would have saved millions of lives. And it didn't work. And, you know, he learned a lot of lessons from that. He thought maybe, well, he, he accepted responsibility for this part. He actually didn't think up that particular way of going about this continent-wide uh, flanking maneuver. He wanted to go north. But he adopted it. And when it meant trouble, everybody else sort of drifted away. And they left him holding the bag. Uh, and so he learned from that. What he learned was, don't take responsibility for something you don't have the authority to accomplish. So that means, by the way, that tens of thousands of people on the Gallipoli, Gallipoli Peninsula, many of them from Australia and New Zealand, died because that, that effort went wrong. And Churchill's part in it was that if he had seen that they were going to blame him for this and he still didn't have the power to make it happen, he might have stopped it. And in the Second World War, he learned. He set things up very differently from that. So the point is, states, statesmen have consequences. And sometimes people are harmed, whatever they do, and innocent people too. And then, of course, there are the partisans on the other side, you know? I mean, uh, until uh, sometime in September 1940, but reoccurring through the war, there were leading people in the British government and the British aristocracy who were in touch with Hitler, trying to work out a peace, and thought that Britain ought to, ought to side with Hitler. And then, you know, the communists in, in Britain, uh, they uh, agitated against the war, uh, well, uh, in the beginning, because in the, in the beginning of the war, the Soviet Union was in league with Nazi Germany. And so the daily worker and the communist rags in Britain, they agitated against getting in the war. And then the minute Hitler attacked Stalin, then they wanted to get in. They were all for it, right? And so partisanship explains a lot too. And the challenge, and it's the challenge for every citizen too, is to do the work think as hard as you can, say your prayers, try to place yourself in the right, and try to place yourself in the right in a way that harms the fewest people and helps the most. And uh, so that's the spirit. And that's, you know, that spirit is strained right now in the country because it's hyper-partisan. I agree. It is hyper-partisan. You know, you said something earlier. I'm, I'm, by the way, thank you for explaining that regarding why uh, folks like Churchill are hated at the level that they are. And I know you kind of said we need a Lincoln and we need a uh, Trump has some of that, you know, where they, they have similar uh, methods of uh, facing opposition and power. Who is the closest thing to a Lincoln that we have right now? Are you seeing anybody outside of Trump? I'm talking about the future. Who is somebody you're looking at right now that could be a future Lincoln? Well, I have hopes for some of the young ones who I'm an old man now, so I know a lot of people. And, uh, you know, uh, Tom Cotton, a senator, is a friend of mine. We're both from Arkansas. It means we're cousins. Um, he, uh, you know, Mike Pence is a heck of a guy. Do they have that level of talent? Well, we'll see, right? You know, I, I, Tom Cotton is a personal friend of mine. I've known him a long time, long time before he got in politics. 
And, uh, you know, I, I believe, by the way, that Clarence Thomas is one of the greatest Americans in history. I think he's the greatest member of the court in our time. And so he, he's, not, he's not a political man. He's a legal slash political man. But I think he has the qualities in spades. I mean, it's just awesome. So anyway, there's some greatness. But is there that level of greatness? That's kind of once in 100 years kind of thing. I agree. I agree. I, I think that's why when sometimes people say we need a Reagan, we need a Lincoln, we need a this. I think it sometimes puts the pressure on the party because everybody's sitting there saying, well, you know, no one can compare to Reagan's humor and wit. No one can compare to, you know, what Lincoln had to do when he went against and it kind of a, 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 a sometimes scares some people off to say, well, maybe I'm not that good enough to go there. By the way, didn't Clarence Thomas, wasn't he a faculty, faculty of uh, uh, Hillsdale? I thought he was faculty, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I just was fortunate to meet him before he became famous. And before he became famous, I, I began to think that he's one of the greatest people I'd ever seen. And then he got on the court. And, you know, he's just a, he's a very magnificent man, magnanimous man. So uh, I went to see him one time. And, uh, you know, I don't go to see him very often because I don't feel like I ought to take his time. But he usually chastises me for not. But I said, uh, you know, Justice, this morning, I said, I've done some work and I have to talk to you about something. And I'm going to take 30 minutes. And I apologize in advance, you won't like it. And he said, what do you want to talk about, Larry? And I said, I want to talk about your greatness. And he said, I don't want to talk about that. And I said, see, I told you, I'm going to read you some things that you've written and some things that John Marshall wrote and some things that some of your contemporaries wrote. And you will see that you are a recovery of something amazing. And I read it to him and he, he actually said, Larry, you know, you and your friends helped me learn how to do that. And I said, sir, we do not know how to do that. We are not judges. You have done that. Thank God for it. Well, I just think he's awesome and I don't mind saying so. And he doesn't like me saying so. He, he, he comes across as I've never met him. He comes across. I've watched a lot of his uh, on how he takes his approach. He seems like a very strong character type of a leader. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's and it's good to you, see you saying that about him. But, you know, you said something. If, you, if we can go back to Civil War, you said Civil War, all these other events that's happened. We've not shut down. Right. We've not shut down and told kids you can't go to school. You can't do this. You can't do that. I lived in Iran when uh, Saddam Hussein attacked Iran. We got bombed 167 times in a day in Tehran. We still had school. You know, we, we still went to school. I mean, I, I, uh, we moved to Bandar Pahlavi, which is a different city now, Shomal, and I still went to school. They didn't shut down school, and that was a war with bombing and people dying and half a million. You know, it was a pretty intense time for where we were at. What kind of, what kind of jurisdiction, if I can say, do governors like a Newsom or a, uh, a Cuomo or Mayor de Blasio or Garcetti have like last night coming out and just saying we're putting a curfew 10 o'clock until December, you know, going into Thanksgiving and Cuomo had his big exchange on TV with uh, the reporter asking him a question. And he said, that's an obnoxious question. And the next thing you know, a few minutes later, they pretty much shut down, you know, New York. What, what kind of jurisdiction does the government have to tell all of us that you cannot go anywhere and you have to stay home? Well, the, the, uh, that's right. Uh, they have built, we have built, we have permitted them to build, I guess you'd say, a mechanism that can reach into every village in the land. And a key to it is every village in the land, Hillsdale, Michigan, all of them, they have people whose prime duty is to read bureaucratic rules that come down from above. And that's what they do all the time. And you know, I'm in Hillsdale, I know some of them. They're very nice people, they're neighbors. But also, they get these complicated things, you know, like here, here's a rule that we've been enforcing or did enforce for a time in Michigan. It was legal for you to go to the market and buy a garden hoe, but you couldn't buy seeds. And so stores, you know, on pain of fine and being closed, had to rope off the seed section. And, you know, there's a list of, th list of things you can go and buy. There's a, you know, our governor has written a thousand pages of rules 
with her and six or eight people who work for her. And then, you know, all over, right? I mean, 250,000 college students, according to the New York Times, I like to quote them when I think they're right, uh, have had this virus and three have died. And the three had very serious other illnesses, right? So the point is, this is much less dangerous to the young than the ordinary flu, but we're shutting them down. And you know, if you go read the governor's rules, because the people who are dying from this virus, and it is very serious virus, right? One must be careful if you're older and if you have one of several diseases, respiratory illness, heart disease, uh, kidney failure, diabetes, th things like that, right? And then it can kill you in a hurry, right? And so those people should be incredibly cautious and others should be cautious when they're around them. But if you confine everybody to their homes, then you know, the head of the CDC in July, the guy one step above Fauci, okay, his name's beginning with an R. He said in July that in the last two months, there had been more extra suicides than there had been COVID deaths. Nobody counts that, right? What about the businesses lost? What about the young people who lose the golden years of their life when they can prepare their intellects and character to live a great life? We just suspend all that. And the decisions are made by people who don't even understand what that activity is. Larry, you said your governor wrote a thousand rules, a page with a thousand page is something with a, a bunch of rules. It's, isn't your governor also, you know, some folks are trying to get her impeached. I just read yeah, something well, yesterday. In a rare uh, outbreak of uh, virtue, uh, they've put articles of impeachment in against her. And I, I you know, I think she, she, look, she, here's the situation. The Supreme Court of Michigan ruled that she was acting like a legislature and going beyond her power. And uh, so she didn't have the power to do the, to extend these emergency orders. So then in the next step, she delegated that to the health department, which are her appointees. So her position now is an elected official may not have the power to do this, but these bureaucrats have the power. And so they're just, you know, they just won't stop. And, uh, you know, I can just tell you at Hillsdale College, it's, it's a wonderful place, right? And the kids are heartsick about these disruptions. And they're, they like me because I'm fighting them, but they wish I'd be more successful. I'm working on that. I know you came out yesterday, I believe it's yesterday, saying you sent an email out to your students, faculty and staff saying, Regret regretfully, we are no longer able to hold or attend classes in person as of Wednesday of this week. We comply with these orders unwillingly and intend to do everything possible in order to carry on the life of the college despite this interference. And your active uh, cases, I believe, went down from 76 the week prior to 32. And 189 students of yours have tested positive for COVID-19. And you guys have like a 10-day quarantine guidelines that you follow in your school. H how are you being affected with some of the decisions she's making, as well as coronavirus? Well, there's this thing called the Great Barrington Declaration. You can just find it on the internet. And it's three really, you know, one from Stanford, one from Harvard, one from Oxford, three leading epidemiologists. And now they've been signed on by 20,000 others or something like that around the world. And what they say is, this thing does not hurt young, healthy people. And they say, herd immunity is not a strategy, it's a biological fact. If we get a vaccine, the only way it can be effective is by helping us achieve herd immunity faster and herd immunity means most people are not vulnerable to it, and so the virus can't spread. Well, the way we're doing it is we're preventing people who won't be harmed by the virus from getting it, and that, that spreads the load of getting herd immunity equally upon, upon the people who are safe from it and the people who are vulnerable to it. And that, that thing, you know, in other words, if I was left to my own devices, I would... Uh, Every time a kid got sick, I'd tell, I'd say, stay in your room. We look in on them twice a day. Call if you get breathing problems. Very unlikely that you will. Uh, but if you do, you know, we'll be there, right? And then 
when the symptoms go away, you can come back out. That's what you should do, right? And then you wouldn't be quarantined people who won't be harmed by it for 14 days for fear that they will get it. And that's 14 days lost in their lives. And these are precious days. So the point is, it's just, in my opinion, just wrongheaded from the beginning. And see, here's another thing. Let's say I'm wrong about that. Well, first of all, there's nobody at Hillsdale College who's not a volunteer. You, there's 4,500 other colleges. You, you can go to any of them, right? If there's one that has all the harshest quarantine policies in the world, you could go to that one. Faculty members, they can work anywhere they want to, right? And you know, with the faculty, because some of them are older, we tell them, if you're concerned about this, you can teach by Zoom. And we tell the kids, if you think you're vulnerable to this, you can study by Zoom. Now, none of the kids do, and few of the faculty members do. The point being, if I make a determination about this, there's options for everybody affected by it. If the governor makes the determination, it's the law. And you got to move out of the state if you want to escape it. And maybe that won't be enough. That's a big so difference. it just looks so wrong-headed to me. Right. It's a big difference. And, 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 and by the way, um, uh, uh, what are your thoughts about vaccine? When the vaccine does come out, I know right now Moderna and, uh, and, and Pfizer came out and they're both talking about 94.5% on the Moderna side. And then Pfizer originally said 90. Now they're saying 95% efficacy. When it comes out, are you going to make it a mandatory thing where you're going to require your kids to take the vaccine to go to school? Or are you going to make that an option as well for them? Yeah, I'm not going to require them to do anything they don't want to do unless I've got a really clear reason, right? So there's a, a woman. She's a heroic woman. She's a member of our faculty. And I don't know what she's got, but everybody says if she gets this thing, she'll die. I can't keep her out of the classroom. I've said to her once, I said, you know, if you get this thing and die, it'll be very inconvenient to me for my sake. Don't do it. And she says back to me, she says, okay, I'll stop when you stop. You know, well, I just adore that woman. So I will encourage her in the strongest terms to get the vaccine but she's a human being. And you know why she keeps teaching? Same way, I, same reason I keep teaching and I keep working. This is my life. It's what I'm supposed to do. I agree. And so I should do it against obstacles too, because there's an obstacle every day, right? And what we're teaching young people is your life can be suspended for causes that are not obviously good. And that's not going to make them stronger. It's going to make them weaker. But I think that's part of the purpose. Interesting. I like the whole choice part where, uh, you know, you're going you're gonna to give them a choice to, to decide what they're going to be doing. But at the same time, you're sending the example. Another topic that's been coming up is college uh, uh, tuition being paid for. Biden, first two years for everybody. Let's uh, forgive $10,000. No, let's give, forgive $50,000. And then Elizabeth Warren says, let's forgive all the $1.5 trillion. How are you affected by that if, all of that's being forgiven because that, it doesn't affect the colleges and universities. That goes straight to Sally Mae and the lenders and the taxpayers, right? What do you think yeah, about yeah. what's being proposed with, you know, paying for college tuition of kids? Well, uh, two questions. You know, first of all, what, what is it a good idea? And the second is, what's its effect on us? Well, it, it can't be a good idea. And the reason is, of all of the things on earth that somebody can give you, Education is the last thing that you can get as an entitlement. And the reason is every minute that you're learning, you're concentrating and it takes energy and discipline to do it. And the teacher can be brilliant and you're not paying attention, you learn nothing. So the first step is to get a higher education, you need to want one and be prepared to sacrifice for it. So this idea that we're just gonna send everybody to college, well, what will they do when they get there? Used to be a distinction to go, right? And you know, the success rates in college are miserably low now. So I don't think any of that's a good idea and I don't think that's where the problem is. Now affecting us, we don't take any of that money, right? So we get, and the other thing is, we get a small percentage of our money from the students. Last year it was 7% 
of the revenues of Hillsdale College came from the students and their parents. And we're trying to make that number zero. Now we have an unusual reason for wanting to do that. Um, we under, you know, we have an honor code. It's very difficult to get into Hillsdale College. And that's precious because you're gonna to have to work. Half the time, the course is the same for every student. And that means you don't like physics, Never mind. you gotta take it. You don't like philosophy, you gotta take it, right? So we need kids who commit and they sign an honor code. And if we're not charging them anything at all, then we can ask for more in the way of commitment from them. And that's the valuable thing. That's what makes success. I like that. That's a very interesting perspective on what you said there. If we're not asking nothing from them, we can expect more from them. And you're only taking 350 kids a year anyway. So it's not like you're opening it up to everybody. And see, the other thing is we teach, we have two and a half million people taking online courses at Hillsdale College. And those are free. We don't ask any money in, in them either, right? And and there's there's about 70,000 people now, I think, that have taken all 26 of the courses we've done so far and taken the exams and passed them. They've got a sort of undergraduate education there. And you know, we we you know, we 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 have a we have a rule of action. First of all, Hillsdale College itself, the little nuclear reactor in remote Michigan, that has to burn hot and pure. You got to get the best kids, the ones that most want to be there, the faculty who are the most eloquent and, and able, and you got to make that thing a treasure. And then that thing can radiate all over the country. Mm -hmm. We've started, what, 24 charter schools now? We got eight more forming, right? And our kids go teaching them. We're about to start a master's degree program in classical education to get to build, train school leaders, you know, so people can teach others, right? And the thing is, this is an activity that has never been, you know, at its peak, it's never been a profit-making activity. Education is for young people who haven't established themselves yet. And they take some time before they start their career and they improve their intellects and their characters. So of course, it's a charitable enterprise. You should do it efficiently and you should do it as cheaply as possible, and you should do it excellently. And, you know, when, when education was private, that was how it was. You know, used to be 70% uh, of the people, it's about 1960, went to liberal arts colleges. Now it's 16%. And where do they go now? They go to the second and third tier state universities. And uh, that's a change, right? And those places are not teaching the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it'd be better if we trained them and if, we, if students learned the history and principles of their country and what kind of thing they are and the great story of the past and philosophy with its many contentions, right? Everybody, you know, used to be a high school education brought most of that stuff. So that's, you know, one of our problems is we've bureaucratized education. It's a centralized top-down thing. And, you know, Republicans are extensively responsible for that. And we need to liberate that, right? Charter schools is the great engine wait, because- Wait, you said Republicans what, are responsible for that. Why, why is that? No Child Left Behind Act. Uh, in the first, uh, the two guys named Bush since Reagan, right? They both, uh, uh, the, the elder, you know, they're fine people, by the way, and I voted for them and would vote for them again, uh, you know, depending on the alternative. But um, uh, they thought that they could fix education in America from Washington, D.C. And so they came up with this, di this idea of high stakes testing, which means, and then, you know, one of them said to me, a senior guy in this George W. Bush administration when they were about to launch the No Child Left Behind Act, which was a disaster and had to got be rid of. He said, uh, he said, uh, well, we'd like you to take the lead in this. And I said, sounds like a bad name. And he said, bad name. I said, yeah. I said, you ever been in the classroom? Somebody's always getting left behind. You got to go back and get them. But also some of them are going to just get farther than others. That's just how it is, right? And uh, 
And then they thought, and they said, well, we're going to have these national tests. And see, schools all over America now take two months off in the spring and teach toward the test, right? And that means the tests are driving curriculum. Mm. And who writes the test, right? Except the education elite. It was the most foolish idea I've ever heard. And it dominates education today, K through 12. It's uh, uh, that's why I wanted you to tell the history on that with uh, it's funny. I said no child left behind, no family left behind. You know, it's uh, a concept of somebody is going to be left behind because there is competition and someone's going to be willing to do more than the other person is. Makes a lot of sense. I, I got two other topics for you before we wrap up here. One of them is uh, uh, regarding we talked about slavery earlier. I'm uh, half Armenian, half Assyrian. And if you know history, which I'm willing to bet you do, you know what happened with Armenian genocide with the Ottoman Empire and the Turks and all that other stuff that took place. This year earlier, you had both Congress and Senate that said, yes, that event did take place until it went to uh, all the way to the top. And they said, no, we're not going to pass it to make it official with the fear of the relationship with Turkey being hit with Erdogan, because Erdogan has uh, got the most powerful military in the in the in the Middle East, and if God forbid America says, yes, it was a genocide, you know, Turkey may face a trillion or $2 uh, of uh, reparations that they may need, may need to pay. You're, you're seeing a lot of conversations come up, and I have a feeling over the next four years, it's gonna be even more, the conversation about reparation for slavery. What are your thoughts about folks who bring up for all those years of what happened that maybe there, it deserves a reparation? What are your thoughts on that? Well, the problem is who's going to pay whom, right? Because people who never had a slave are gonna be paying people who were never slaves. You see, that's what you have to do if you're gonna have reparations. And why is that right? It means by the way, that some people who are poor are going to be paying other people who are rich. That's by the way, what affirmative action does in colleges. It means that uh, rich people of one race get in ahead of poor people of another race. Because if they just mean tested, you know, like we have, we have the Frederick Douglass scholarships at Hillsdale College. Frederick Douglass spoke on our campus twice, really great man. And so se severely poor kids, inner city kids, difficult background kids, we don't care what color they are, but we're looking for that, right? We have scholarships for those kids. But they're just like everybody else. They got to want to come and they got to be able to do it. And so we go looking for ones who are like that and come to find out you can find some of them in the poor areas because most of these colleges that do pick them by color, according to a, a book by a woman from Stanford, they're getting them from the suburbs. They're getting relatively rich kids, right? And that doesn't, that's not the deal, right? I mean, like, you know, the Armenians were slaughtered en masse. Right. And I, we, the world should acknowledge that. That was shameful. Right. And you know, the guy who did it, uh, above all, Kemal Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey, mm -hmm. he was in many ways a very great man. And he turned Turkey toward the West as part of NATO. Right. And here, here's another funny history is so ironic. Um, in the last stages of that. Dardanelles campaign where Churchill tried to flank around in the First World War through the Mediterranean. <laughs> Too late and uncoordinated, they launched a land attack on the Gallipoli Peninsula, which is in the Straits of the Dardanelles that, that, that uh, uh, connects the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. uh, which means it reaches up to Russia and all around Eastern Europe, right? It's a key place. Well, they decided they, they didn't make it by ships. They decided to land some troops. Well, they landed some troops and they went up and surveyed the hill above them. There's photographs from the top of the hill of British soldiers uh, sunbathing on the beach. And the general said, we'll go up there tomorrow. Well, the next day when they tried to go up there, this Turkish force had arrived and it was led by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. It was led by the, who would become the founder of modern Turkey. And he was a tremendous soldier, right? And defeat of that thing had terrible effect on the career of Winston Churchill. And my point about that is that's an incredibly uh, uh, 
uh, significant man. And for the West and for freedom, he ended up doing a lot of good. And, you know, for Turkey, he killed a bunch of people. You should not sweep that under the rug. I agree. I agree. And the, the, the thing is the right history being told for folks to know what really happened in events. So uh, that was an interesting answer on reparations saying those paying who didn't own slaves to those who weren't slaves. That kind of makes you think about it. But the argument come, come back and say, well, like the argument, I don't know if you saw when Kamala made that one video saying, you had a better head start than I did. I don't have any generational wealth. You did. You did have generational wealth. I didn't have any generational wealth because I come from a family of slaves. So I don't deserve, I deserve something to give me the same upper hand to be able to compete with you. That's the argument you're seeing being made on the other side. What do you say to that? Uh, well, two things. Uh, the goal is equality of opportunity. Equality of opportunity will always be imperfect. And the reason is kids love their parents, love their kids more than they love other people's kids. For example, I grew up extremely rich. Uh, my father was a school teacher in Pocahontas, Arkansas, and he loved to read books. Think of the wealth that I got from that. <laughs> and because he was poor, I learned how to work, right? And I watched him and my mother work all the time. And, and, you know, so I became a worker, right? And I love to read books. Now, not everybody gets that advantage. And, you know, I like to say, you know, I might have been born to a rich wastrel. And uh, instead, I got lucky. But, you know, uh, Patrick, you got lucky, right? Your family, a grand adventure, courage, trouble, right? Has that been anything but good for you? And it's partly because of your character and what kind of guy you are, but it had those experiences to temper that character. You'll never even all that out. You can't do it. So what you need is, and, and another thing is, now you're going to take a force, right? Because the way you make money in a free economy is you do things for people that they like and they pay you for it. That means the free economy is responsive to the needs of others, right? So now what we're going to do is we're going to pass a rule it's going to take a whole bunch from one bunch of people and give it to another bunch of people. And that makes the people in charge of that rule really powerful. And those people are people too. I like that. And, and, and uh, I got to tell you, I, you're right. I feel like I'm the luckiest man alive. Like literally, I literally feel like I'm the luckiest man alive. And if anybody works with me, they will tell you, I've said that a few thousand times that I feel like I'm the luckiest man alive to have lived. Yeah that I've lived so far. Technical question for you at the end here before we wrap up. Ronald Reagan. So here's a man who you said the, 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 I think your words were somewhere you said what made Reagan special is the fact that he was a great explainer, which I've never heard that before to say Ronald Reagan or a person is an explainer. Like he explained things and you were kind of like, oh, okay, that kind of does make sense when you explain. Cause sometimes people are just quick. They give you the answer, but you're right. He was an explainer. So if Ronald Reagan who is adored uh, by his side and respected by folks on the other side, and he wins 49 out of 50 states. Why is it that his own son disagrees with him politically, his biological son, Ron Reagan, but his adopted son, Michael Reagan, agrees with him politically? How does that work out? Well, isn't that, uh, isn't that proof of human freedom? You know, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the kid business. I'm, I'm an expert on 18 to 21 year olds. It's a really vibrant bunch, right? And we get siblings and they're different because they're human, right? And, they, and they've got different inclinations. You know, Aristotle teaches us a beautiful thing, uh, many beautiful things. One of them is, how do you form your character? The answer is you form it by making choices, especially difficult choices. And choices are difficult when there's something that's convenient or easy or will avoid pain, but there's something else that makes you want to do the harder thing. And that's the voice of the good talking to you. And your character is formed when you listen to that voice. And then you might suffer or forego some pleasure. And if you do that over and over again, you'll become a great person. And the motive force for that choice is always in the person. 
And that means two siblings can make it different, right? And I'm not saying that, you know, Aristotle says that only a very few people become fully vicious and only a very few people become fully virtuous. He says, most of us are in the middle leaning toward the virtue. And uh, I think that's, you know, there's no accounting for people, right? That's, they're free, that's what they're like. I love that explanation. I love that explanation. Larry, uh, thank you so much for being a uh, guest on Valuetainment. I was gonna ask you if you don't mind giving us the link to the book, the recommendations you said of books for people to read. And we're gonna put that below for folks to be able to go get the list of your books in PDF format. You can send that to us or have your folks send it to us and we'll put that below as well for people to get. But once again, Larry, I'll give you the final words. Anything you wanna tell the folks where we're going into a possibility of a new administration. Yeah, well, pray for our country. God will preserve it. And also, I want to thank you again. You know, I have my wife and I have a son in the 82nd Airborne. And uh, you were in the 101st. My son is in Syria right now. And uh, he's fine. And I, but I know what a family thing that is. And so America was blessed when your family made its way here. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And I appreciate your son's service as well. 82nd is one of the most prestigious units to be a part of. And uh, for him to represent that in Syria, you know, it says a lot. And I'm sure he's going to appreciate that long term when he tells those stories to his kids and his grandkids. Larry, once again, thank you for being a guest on Valuetainment. My great pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. Very heavy interview. A lot of different topics, not just one. I mean, we went all over the place. So, And there was a part where he talked about his book list that he recommends. We're going to have that below for you to get. So if you want to get the book recommendations, go below, click on the description. There's a newsletter there. You click on it. We'll send you the PDF with the books he's recommending, as well as if you like this interview, you want to watch another one similar to this format. I did an interview with Richard Wolf, who's a professor, a diehard socialist. We went, in, we went back and forth. Very friendly, but it was a heated debate back and forth. If you've not watched it, click over to watch it. And if you're not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.